From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at www.thepodvocate.com and check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. We will hear argument first this morning in case 18.956, Google versus Oracle. Okay, on today's episode of The Podvocate, we are talking again to Professor Matthew Sag. My name is Leanne Johnson. And that's just Olivia Ashe. Excited to be back with you both today. All right, first things first, the burning question. There's a new justice on the court who wasn't present for the original oral argument, and there's been a vacancy. How is that handled? So, traditionally, justices don't tend to vote on cases where they did not participate in oral argument. Uh, However, that is just a tradition and there is nothing that actually prevents it. So it is possible that Justice Barrett would vote on Google versus Oracle, but I think it is unlikely. I don't know, Professor Sag. It seems like these days the unlikely is the likely. (laughs) Well, that might be entirely right. Um, What I would say is... If the case is going to be resolved 5-3 or by some greater margin of victory, then her participation kind of seems unnecessary. It's not going to affect the result. So why would you, you basically, why would you bother? Right. Uh, If, on the other hand, she was going to break a 4-4 tie, why would you use up political capital on a copyright case that, while it's profoundly important, and it's important to people like me who study copyright, and it's important to the software industry, I doubt that it is high on the list of priorities of Justice Barrett. Uh, When Justice Kavanaugh missed the first few oral arguments uh, a couple of terms ago, there was a case that was clearly going to be decided 4-4, Nick versus Township of Scott, Pennsylvania. And that case was reheard. So if it's a 4-4 split, then you might actually have the case being rescheduled for yet more oral argument. Uh, I think that is more likely than Justice Barrett voting on a case like this i just don't see she could but i just don't see that it would be it would be merited right right that's a good point i always forget that you can rehear arguments like i mean the supreme court can do whatever they feel like they need to do um and i forget that that's one of their tools in their toolbox well thank you for answering that that's really a question that's been on my mind and i'm sure everybody else's mind even if it's not related to the google versus oracle case people are definitely concerned about the cases that have been heard in the intermediary period moving to the case at hand do you have any first impressions good parts bad parts or highlights that you noticed yeah. 
I thought that the advocate for Google, Tom Goldstein, was really great. I thought that he did a very good job answering the questions. I thought that his tactical decision to basically abandon the argument that APIs are always uncopyrightable and focus on the argument that in this context, the doctrine of merger applied made sense. And you could kind of tell when Chief Justice Roberts started in on his questioning that Roberts was a little disappointed that he didn't get to grill Goldstein on this argument. He was like, well, you know, you've kind of abandoned this argument and you've gone straight to merger, but I want to ask my question anyway. And Goldstein's like, our argument has always been merger. <laughs> and, you know, I think uh, that's one of the advantages of having a you know, an experienced Supreme Court advocate. And regardless of what I think the law should be, I thought it was tactically astute. So I thought he did a did a really good job. I thought that I wasn't as impressed by the other two advocates, and I found uh, I found Stewart for the government a little bit confusing. Mm-hmm. And I think at times he said things he didn't quite mean to say, but I thought it was really interesting when we got to the fair use part of the discussion that he actually said that interoperability is something that weighs in favor of fair use, which is just fundamentally, logically inconsistent with Oracle's argument. So I was kind of surprised no one jumped on that. It would be interesting to see whether we see that referred to in the judgment. I know a highlight for me was when you correctly predicted that they would bring up J.K. Rowling. (laughs) Um, They really got into the battle of analogies more so than I was even expecting given our previous conversation about that. But they really did, as you mentioned, come right out of the gate with the merger doctrine. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. So there is this fundamental conundrum here that the Copyright Act says really clearly that regardless of how it's expressed, you don't get copyright in a method of operation. The Copyright Act also really clearly says that software is eligible for copyright protection as a literary work. Given that software is functional and that its its purpose is to be functional and that you can tell good software from bad software by how well it performs its function, as opposed to sort of subjective, artistic, literary merit. It's a bit of a conundrum that software is copyrightable, but that copyright is not supposed to extend to methods of operation. Courts of appeal have actually done a really good job squaring the circle for, I guess, since the 1990s by saying that, well, you get copyright protection for your software and even to some extent for what it does, but you don't get copyright protection for the core features of the software that are necessary to interact with other forms of software. So the keys to interoperability or the application protocol interfaces. That is an excellent compromise. It's very sensible policy. It doesn't magically resolve the tension between software, which is 
a set of instructions to achieve a set result is copyrightable, but methods of operation aren't covered by copyright. So what Google in its briefing had argued is basically, you know, the status quo is correct. Software in general is copyrightable, but APIs and interoperability keys are not copyrightable. What Goldstein basically did is abandon that as a general proposition mm -hmm. because, you know, even as Justice Breyer pointed out, well, you know, that would be treating like some software differently from other software and it's all software. So they kind of retreated from that argument and focused on the argument of where where the function is essentially indispensable, then the merger doctrine applies. So the difference between the merger argument and the just general APIs don't get copyright argument is that merger really looks at, well, what degree of necessity is right. there? Here? And I have to ask Professor Sag, did you buy that argument? Did you think that was an effective way to go about, you know, getting their point across. I I did buy the argument. I mean, I when I listened to the oral argument, uh, I found myself sort of you know, shouting things angrily in response. <laughs> um, uh, there, I would have argued the case. Yeah, slightly tell us about that. that. This is the this is the good stuff. I would have framed it as follows. I would have said if we had done. What we did here for one declaration that was just a small part of one piece of implementing code, there is no way this case would be in the Supreme mm -hmm. Court. Right? If you look at each declaration on its own as you know, just a very tiny part of the implementing code, and you look at what Google did, what they did seems perfectly reasonable. So imagine, uh, let's, uh, you know, let's work with an example that you should all be familiar with. So you can buy a printer fairly inexpensively, but then when you go to buy a new toner cartridge, it's like, whoa, my toner cartridge is really expensive. <laughs> Lexmark tries to get you to buy their cheap printer plus their expensive toner cartridges by putting a little computer program inside a chip inside the toner cartridge and making the printer ask for that program every single time. And that's called DRM, right? Yes, that is, that is a form of DRM. Although, uh, well, actually, it's analogous to DRM, but there's no copyright that's being protected by the computer program. Right? The computer program is actually protecting something else um, so in the in the lexmark case and you know, there, there is a there is an old case involving lexmark the court said look you are allowed to copy the computer program which was a very simple program in order to trick the printer into thinking that this is an authorized cartridge and if that program had instead been a haiku, right, just, you know, a short uh, poem consisting of 17 syllables, that haiku would not be copyrightable in that context, like used as a passphrase 
to get the printer to accept the ink cartridge. But the haiku would still be a copyrightable work for other purposes. Oh, but not for that so, particular purpose. Yeah. So the reason the reason why I think merger is the correct analysis is it allows for you to look at this in context. So if if I'm, you know, poet by day, print cartridge magnate by night, and I write like a, a nice little haiku, right? it's copyrightable. It's a copyrightable work. People shouldn't copy the whole thing without my permission. But if I use it as the secret pass key in order to try and force people to buy more expensive replacement parts than they need to, then if someone copies it purely for that purpose of interoperability, then you know I think that that is an appropriate place to apply the merger doctrine because to achieve that function, there is no other password right. that will work. And that's basically what Google's saying here, that there is no other passphrase for their software to work with whatever Java is offering. Yeah. That is that is that is Google's argument uh, in a nutshell. Now you can reject that argument and say, "No, I don't think merger should work that way. Merger should only work prospectively." Mm-hmm. So you look at when I wrote the poem, were there other ways to write it? Well, and of course there were. Um, but if you're going to say that, then you basically you have to allow for almost exactly the same analysis under the heading of fair use instead. And so, you know, I think Google should be happy if it could prevail under either theory. I actually think the merger doctrine is the the better way to go about it. Now, the problem for Google, and my strategy would have been to admit this problem, the problem for Google is, sure, we have other cases where people have done this like once off, and they went and did it like 30,000 times, right? And it's just the, the elaborate scale of their copying and the, the massive commercial product that they built on the back of that copying is so audacious that it invites courts to think about the issue differently. But I think... The way I would have argued it is to say, you know, you're on it. You're not just setting the law for Google. You're setting the law for interoperability, you know, up and down the system. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't have any sympathy for Google. Maybe we should think Google has so much money, it can pay a license. But the principle is important. Um, yeah. That's why I would have argued it, and probably <laughs> And Goldstein said, specifically, under the merger doctrine, there is no copyright protection for computer code that is the only way to perform those functions. And Roberts kind of countered with that and said, I mean, if it's the only way, the way for you to get it is to you get a license. So he kind of reflected that skepticism based on the questions the justices asked. What do you think that they were primarily concerned about? I think that the answer is different for different justices. I think that Justice Breyer was chiefly concerned about the copyrightability 
of APIs. And I think I'm entirely convinced that Justice Breyer is going to vote for Google on that mm. question. I think that Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor are more generally concerned about the result of allowing for copyright protection in APIs, but aren't necessarily on board with Justice Breyer that APIs should not be copyrightable. I think they might be on board. You know, it's, it, it is a little bit hard to tell. But I think for other justices, they're totally untroubled by the copyrightability of APIs, but they're possibly troubled by the fair use issue mm -hmm. and not even necessarily on the merits of the fair use issue, but on the merits of the federal circuit yanking that decision away from the jury. Yeah. And so this is a case where it's, it's difficult for me to count votes. The better you know an issue and the more strongly you feel about it, the worse you do at predicting how other people will vote because you just transpose how they should vote with what they objectively are actually likely to do. Um, so I'm probably entirely wrong, but this is what I think is going to happen. I think Breyer and Sotomayor and possibly Kagan will vote either on the basis of just uncopyrightability or a merger that the APIs in this case were not subject to copyright protection. No. So effectively overruling the Federal Circuit's 2014 decision. In addition, I think it's possible that Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch will say that it was wrong of the Federal Circuit to throw this out to the jury and then take it back from the jury. Um, now, the Supreme Court is more theoretically in favor of the prerogatives of the jury than it is in practice. So, you know, that one I don't feel a lot of confidence about, but I think we could end up with a very fractured decision where we have three justices saying no API copyright and five justices saying fair use and then the remaining justices saying no, API copyright and no fair use. And that is the best case scenario for Google. I also think it's entirely possible that we could just see like a 7-1 decision in favor of Oracle. I wouldn't be totally shocked. Um, I would be shocked. I would yeah. definitely be shocked. <laughs> oh, yeah? So tell me, tell me your impressions. I really, you because know, I know like, you don't feel so passionately about this as I do, so you're probably in a better position to say what you thought their reactions yeah, were. Yeah, I guess initially um, I didn't really feel overall convinced by either side. It felt I kind agree. of, I don't know, uneventful as regards to, to what they argued, how they put it into perspective. And so I don't know if I feel like there's really a clear a clear way the court's going to go because I didn't really feel convinced. Um, I don't know, Leanne, you said you too. Tell us more. Yeah, I didn't feel convinced in part because I feel like both sides got 
really bogged down in the analogies because the justices were throwing analogies. They were throwing analogies right back. They were trying to differentiate. Like there was, a, I think there was a football team analogy. They got into book writing. They really tried to wrap their heads around this issue that I think is pretty tech specific. And I don't think either the justices were very on board with any of the analogies. And I think the council were also very reluctant to settle down on one. So I think it was just a pretty confusing argument in that regard. I definitely agree with you on Justice Breyer, at least ruling in favor of Google or writing an opinion in favor of Google. But I was met with some surprising skepticism from Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. Um, I thought that they were going to be pretty friendly to Google and they ended up being a little less on board than I thought they were going to be. I was going to say, I remember Professor Sag, you warning us in our last episode about the downfall that analogies could have in this argument. And you said yourself, it really isn't a good one. And so that could could be something to stay away from. And I think the councils fell right into that trap, and as well as the justices. Yeah, it's one of these traps that I think you can see coming, but you right. can't avoid, right? The so the trial court judge taught himself Java in order to run this trial. The trial court judge spent years living with this case. The jury spent weeks, probably months, working on this case. Um, the lawyers involved you know, have spent a decade working on this case. And the justices, I guarantee you, know absolutely nothing about Java and next to nothing about computer programming in general. And you know, they're smart people and they've read the briefs and they're well assisted. But the only way to talk to them is to talk in terms of analogies, even though the analogies are all really unsatisfactory. And the advocates aren't looking for the best, most perfect analogy. They're looking for an analogy that tips the scales in their favor. And so you know, maybe that's another reason why we look at the analogies and we're like, that's just really unsatisfactory. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's difficult. I, I read a blog post after the case by a law professor called Michael Rush, who said, you know, the best analogy is to think of a, uh, like a DVR set-top box or, or a cable set-top box and a remote control, all the remote control is doing is sending signals to your box that's giving them instructions. But if you don't give it exactly the right signals, you know, it won't work. So imagine all those signals were copyrighted in the set-top box. Do you really want to stop anyone from making a compatible remote control and i think you know if that's your analogy the answer is obviously no right um but uh yeah instead we had filing cabinets and restaurants and football teams <laughs> and the football team was so strange. and falling skies um, and falling skies yeah chief justice roberts questions i thought either betrayed just an incredibly poor understanding of the issues or a total indifference to the case. Mm -hmm. um, 
which might be true. You know, like his restaurant question, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, like that is just, that is a question that elucidates absolutely nothing. Then when Justice Kagan re-asked the question and sort of twisted the hypo and made it a little bit better, I was like, oh, that's a good question. It's one of the reasons why I hate the telephonic format of oral argument. Yeah. yeah. I think well, one of the things that we're all reacting to is the argument was, quite frankly, a little yeah. bit boring. I think a lot of these cases have been boring this term so far. And even last term in the May sitting, when we had some really important high stakes cases, they still were just, you know, they lost all of their sparkle and all of their pizzazz and all of their interest because having the judges ask questions in this serial format with their three minute time limits doesn't really allow for worthwhile lines of inquiry to be pursued. And, you know, if Justice Roberts is not that engaged and doesn't have a great question, ordinarily he would just sit back and listen. And then maybe like a good question would occur to him. But the kind of the rigid hierarchical order and the sort of, you know, you speak, then you speak, then you speak. I just think our argument is not nearly as good, as useful, or as much fun as it used to be. That's a really good point. That is a really good point. And I think that definitely speaks to some of how I, you know, it was just kind of, it felt kind of flat. And I think you bring up a good point that this is maybe a result of us being in this telephonic age where we can't, they can't see each other. Um, They're just phoning in. It's not the same energy um, that you would get in the courtroom, which is important, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I don't know if you've been watching any like professional sport since uh the pandemic yeah i saw the what in in the nba they have the um they have the crowd is are like just giant tv boxes kind of and so people are like zooming in i guess but they still have tried to create like all the sound effects and everything i'm sure to make the players feel as though they're still you know in the battle the way they were pre-pandemic but um i don't know how you recreate that in a in a courtroom they have like a yeah. gallery or something of people zooming in or whatnot. A gallery of angry copyright right. law professors <laughs> yelling. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they could, they don't need to do it by telephone. They could do it by Zoom. But the Supreme Court does not want to do that because it doesn't want to be on TV. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember the O.J. Simpson trial. I imagine you're too young for that, but you've probably seen the Netflix special or you're at least aware of it. Yes. The O.J. Simpson trial was a terrible moment for anyone who thought there should be cameras in the courtroom because that trial was a circus and it set the cause of televised trials back decades. None of the justices, you know, they don't want their trials to be like that. They don't want people to play for, for the camera. They don't want to be, they don't want to see themselves on the news taken out of context. Um, and so, yeah, we're not going to get trials on Zoom, even though state Supreme Courts are doing it. You know, a lot of courts are doing it. It seems to be just fine. Uh, 
So, yeah, I think yeah, the telephonic format is suboptimal. Yeah, I mean, I could see a lot of people saying, well, we need it, you know, this is an opportunity to really get down to the argument. It's, you know, no, there's no tension or pressure or, you know, whatever. We don't have the courtroom setting, you know, just what's the argument? The best argument wins, but. Yeah, no, no, I disagree. <laughs> I think, you know, you need the fans, you need the, you need the spectators. And, you know, I mean, so I was, when I was listening to the argument, and on the fair use part of the case, and the lawyer for Oracle was being quizzed on, well, you know, what, you know, like what could be a transformative use for software, and and he said, well, you know, in the Ninth Circuit, in the in the Seeger case, you know, they they used the software not for its original purpose, but to study it and learn from it. If I'd been in the audience, you know, I would have shouted out, and what did they learn? They learned the uncopyrightable APIs that they used to make interoperative software. Like, you know, I can't believe no one pulled him up on that. Because you know, the the outrageous thing about the Federal Circuit's decision is there's clear Ninth Circuit law that says that the APIs are uncopyrightable and the Federal Circuit did not apply it. And you know, part of that clear Ninth Circuit law is the Sega case that Rosencrantz was referring to. It's just like, you know, I don't know, maybe it's good I wasn't in the audience. Maybe I would have been like, you know, dragged out by the bailiff. That's what I was thinking. I haven't sat in on any Supreme Court oral arguments but I'm not sure screaming would have allowed you to stay in the audience. Probably, probably <laughs> not. You probably, yeah, you probably not. But maybe you could have passed a note to, you know, one of the councils and said like, hey, say this, or I mean. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was the one thing that I was surprised Goldstein didn't do a better job of. Like, I thought, like, that was an own goal, but you really needed someone to to point it out um, but yeah. maybe there are reasons i haven't thought of why it didn't make sense for him to do that uh, but yeah, it seemed it seemed like an astonishing uh, you know, inadvertent concession yeah i i would have to agree so i wonder if there's any way we can get in contact you know with goldstein and and <laughs> We could offer to be his coaches, <laughs> yes, you right? Know? Right. Especially if there's re if they if they end up re-arguing the yeah. case. Well, um, I would definitely advocate for Professor Sag, you know, <laughs> supporting supporting his preparation for that. Yeah. Well, if they do re-argue the case, I might send him an email. Um, but uh, yeah, I I should say, I mean, unless you're the advocate and you're up there, I mean, it's difficult to appreciate just how hard it is right. and often the things that you think are like a brilliant idea like there are reasons why they didn't go down that route um yeah 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 absolutely i mean you know we're in we're, we're both two l's we're in legal writing right now doing oral arguments 
there are things that I think of that are brilliant before and after. But when you're, you know, on the Zoom screen in front of your professor trying to argue what you're trying to argue, it doesn't always come out in the way that you had thought it would, um, or you forget things, or the questions take you awry. So I can only imagine the pressure of being on a phone call with the Supreme Court justices. Yeah. yeah. So I want to ask you guys a question. Did you notice the way Goldstein would call the justices sir rather than your honor? Yes, I, I did. I didn't catch that. What is that about? I actually thought it was kind of cool. But then I was like, <laughs> oh, but what did he say to Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor? And I don't remember. Do you? Because I know he didn't call them sir. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I guess you know, he should call them man. Um, but I think I would remember hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought it was it, it was interesting. Like he has a slightly you know, not too unconventional because I mean none of them are really unconventional. They're incredibly conventional, super smart people. But for a Supreme Court advocate, slightly unconventional style. Um, yeah, and it's more efficient to say, sir, rather than your chief justice or your honor. Yeah, so maybe he's just economizing on syllables. <laughs> yeah, maybe that is interesting. I wonder, I don't know, it also, also yeah, makes me wonder about his background. Yeah, sir and ma'am, uh, so maybe that's what he grew up with. Yeah, but yeah, I'm looking at the transcript, definitely like, no, sir. And I don't know if I see ma'am though yet. Yeah. That, that's a little bit problematic if that's the case. If you're going to use a gender-specific honorific, then I think you want to be careful to you know, use the complementary one for the female justices. Otherwise, it's like, oh, well, male justices get called sir and female justices just get called Don't nothing. get called anything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know that's nothing to do with the merits of the argument, but it's just something that kind of stuck with me is that was weird. So we talked a bit about how the justices kind of don't care too much or know too much about the tech aspect of this. I know there's a moment by Justice Breyer where he states a Java function. Java.lang.math.max paren 410. He actually states it wrong because that function needs two variables and it returns the higher of the two. So I, I thought that was an interesting moment. I don't know what he was trying to show by that. But were there any moments or questions that had the opposite effect, that really showed that they were thinking critically about the case in a way that made sense? Yeah, I think you could you could see the concerns that were animating the questions about the QWERTY keyboard or the the innovative restaurant. And I think even if maybe they weren't the greatest analogies, they they did reveal that the justices were interested in asking the right question. And and the hard question is, how do we protect copyright but allow free competition for methods of operation? Yeah, so you don't need to understand how computer software works to realize that that's the key issue. And so, yeah, I mean, like none of the justices really impressed me with their their mastery of the technology, but that's not really a criticism because 
do we really want our Supreme Court justices to waste their time learning Java just so they can understand one copyright case? You know, these are generalist judges, and we should be grateful if they understand the issues. And I think most of them show that they understood at least some of the issues. Like, they either understood, well, incentives are important, computer software, copyright is important, or they understood, you know, freedom of operation is important, and channeling patent protection to the patent system is important, and not overprotecting software is important or interoperability is important. I'm not sure that any justice showed that they understood all of those things at once, um, but that's what makes these hard questions. And just as Kavanaugh said during oral argument, I'm not aware that the sky has fallen in the last five or six years. Is that true or is the sky going to fall? Because we talked a little bit about the practical effects of this last time and how we're kind of already seeing them. So with the oral argument passed, is anything really going to change? Um, yeah. So I thought that Justice Kavanaugh's question there was particularly stupid. It just, <laughs> like, is this one of the moments you were screaming? Yeah. It, like, it, in my head, I mean, I didn't have anything to say that Goldstein actually didn't already say. I mean, like, we had this Federal Circuit decision that profoundly upset settled industry expectations in 2014. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Supreme Court denied cert, but that is totally different to the Supreme Court actually agreeing with the Federal Circuit. Right. In 2014, that was one court deciding one case that was against the weight of authority in almost every federal circuit. And Google still had the chance to win in a jury trial on fair use, which they did. So to say, oh, well, nothing bad has happened in the last six years just seems completely fascist. I think the reality is, is that the software industry has really adapted to the federal circuit decision and Google's probably, I think, likely loss in the Supreme Court, um, but in ways that are not good. Right? Like just because the industry has adapted, I mean, true, maybe the sky has not fallen, but you know we're living in a worse world now on this area than we used to be. Right? So I understand that the justices want to test out these claims about the real world consequences, right. but saying well, you know, this has been the status quo for six years. It's just disingenuous. No, no, it hasn't. Like, this will be the status quo when the Supreme Court decides it. Yes, that was a little bit irritating. Um, but, you know, but, but there is, like, there is a smart question underneath the stupid question. And the smart question is, you know, how will the software industry adapt? Mm-hmm. And are these adaptations harmful or are they neutral or are they even beneficial? Right. And the answer is uh, the software industry has adapted by basically no one will make something new like Java and get it adopted unless it is open source. Yeah. Right? No one will adopt anything like Java ever again unless it is open source. Um, and so... Rather than expanding options, I think 
this decision actually narrows options in some meaningful ways. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, you, know, you just read the amicus briefs, like you know, the computer scientists are saying this, the other computer companies are saying this, you know, it's pretty much just Oracle on Oracle's side. And that should tell you something. If Oracle had, Oracle's case started out as a patent case. If Oracle had prevailed on its patent claims and got like a $9 billion jury verdict, there's no way that companies like Microsoft would be siding with Google right. on the appeal. Yeah. You know, Microsoft doesn't love Google. It's not naturally on Google's side. Right? But Microsoft understands that the position Oracle is arguing for is bad for the software ecosystem. Uh, Microsoft actually would be really happy if Oracle won a big patent victory against Google because Microsoft is quite into software patents. So, you know, I think if you're concerned about the practical effect, that's one area where looking at the briefs and the amicus briefs, I think is actually informative. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Goldstein said right at the outset. And Oracle cannot leverage its copyright to create patent-like rights. So I think that's an interesting thing to take into account here is how this case has moved from a patent case to a copyright case, fair use, merger doctrine, all these concepts kind of floating around in the ether of this case. Yeah, and Justice Roberts, I remember, kind of pushed back on that. He was like, this is copyright, you know, what you're explaining is copyright, not patent. I mean, there's a little bit of back and forth, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was surprised. I might have actually pushed that line harder. I might have come back to that and said, you know, the Federal Circuit's decision here is aberrant and it's partly a rejection of this court's decision in cases like Bilski about the rules for the patentability of software. And so the Federal Circuit has attempted an end run around the Supreme Court's binding precedent on patent law by enabling patent-like protection in computer software, just to sort of you know, basically present this as a challenge to the Supreme Court's authority. Yeah, I think that's in some of the briefing. I don't know. I'd be curious as to the reasons why it wasn't emphasized more at oral argument, but you have very limited time and you can't make all the points you want. Right, right. So when can we expect to see a result from this case, do you think? If it comes out 4-4, I think that it'll take a while because they might hold on to it for a little while to basically see, you know, see if anyone shifts. Um, if it comes out as a very lopsided victory, then sooner rather than later, you know, maybe a couple of months. Um, but you can't really tell. Like, right. it's... There's a, there's a high variance in how long it takes the Supreme Court to issue their decisions. And it's partly just a function of who's writing the majority opinion, who's writing any concurrence or dissent, how much back and forth they have between each other, and what the workload those justices have on other cases. So I'm sure it'll, like, where are we now? We're in the end of October. Mm -hmm. I doubt very much that we'll get a decision this year. I would expect a decision early next year, 
but it could be as late as just before they break for the summer. Yeah, it's kind of when they get to it, they get to it. <laughs> yeah, and no one can rush no them because they're the Supreme Court. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else to add? Anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about? I would just say this case was first filed in 2009, is my recollection. I think that the district court opinion saying that computer APIs were not copyrightable was either in 2012 or 2013. Mm-hmm. The Federal Circuit's decision was in 2014. We then had some delays and a very long and complicated jury trial, another Federal Circuit decision in 2018. This case should have been heard in the Supreme Court's 2019 term, but because of the exigency of the coronavirus, several cases were held over and this is one of them. And so here we are in 2020 and I've just (laughs) told you, you're probably not going to get a decision until 2021. Um, And so in some ways, the case has taken so long to litigate. It's not that the technology is obsolete, but the events that are being complained of seem like they're in the ancient past. But I will guarantee you there is a large team of programmers at Google right now who are working on ways to basically have Android without the declarations. Oh, yeah if that's what it takes. And so they are going to be hanging out for that Supreme Court decision, even if no one else thinks it's particularly important or should be rushed on. Like There are some pretty critical decisions that need to be made, at least with the Android operating system. Um, But I'm also expecting that we could see more litigation on this topic in other contexts. If the Supreme Court rules against Google. So, yeah, you know, I guess we just have to watch and wait to see what the ramifications are. Sounds like another podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, it's been going on for basically centuries in computer science and technology time. So, you know, maybe it's more wait and see as it's been for 10 years. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate having you on again. And it was a really illuminating conversation about a not-so-illuminating oral argument. (laughs) Yeah, again, I can want to echo that gratitude and say um, I will definitely be sending a message or, you know, an email of sorts saying, um, Goldstein, if you need a co-counsel for for the next round, if if we get to that, um, uh, Professor Sag is the way to go. (laughs) Well... Thank you both very much. This has been great fun. I really enjoyed the last podcast. I enjoyed this one as well. Um, And always happy to come back and talk about copyright and or the Supreme Court. Thank you, Mr. Goldstein, uh, Mr. Rosencrantz, Mr. Stewart. Thank you. The case is submitted. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com and visit our website at www.thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. 
Our associate editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leanne Jossen, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.